One of the things that we were teaching the children during Holiday Club this week, one of the repeated phrases that Sam uh, taught, was that Jesus is the Son of God, God's chosen King, with all power and with all authority over everything. And this truth is central to our understanding of Jesus. We didn't want the children to go away thinking that Jesus is just another moral teacher. He is far more than that. We didn't want the children to go away thinking that Jesus' call upon their lives is uh, optional or something that uh, perhaps they might have to consider at some later point in their life. No, we want them to realise that Jesus calls everyone to respond to him as Lord of all. But, I wonder if you noticed, if you take that phrase on its own, if you take it out of context, perhaps it could be a hugely unappealing presentation of the Lord Jesus Christ. The thing it focuses on is his power and his authority to tell you what you ought to do. Power and authority seem to be dirty words in today's culture. They've got a a bad rep. So many have misused their power and authority in so many different uh, circumstances. And it's not uncommon for people today even to characterize Jesus as some angry overlord who's watching over your every move, just looking for you to, to trip up so he can hold you accountable to it. If we only give the children this view of Jesus, that he's the one with all power and all authority, if that's all that we were teaching them, Christianity at best might seem to them a necessary thing, but certainly not an appealing thing. Necessary because they've got to respond to this judge who will one day hold them account, but certainly not appealing. And any call to follow Jesus will sound like a demand that's basically aimed to to restrict their lives and to restrict and impinge upon them. And also, it puts a question mark on, on what it means for God to love us. Does he, does he really actually love us for our own sakes? Or is actually he rather willing to tolerate us so long as we meet some kind of benchmark to pass his test? I'm sure you recognize the, uh, these questions that I'm presenting about this view of Jesus, the one with all power and authority. It doesn't just come up when we're teaching children about who he is. It comes up throughout the media's presentation of what Christianity is and what it means to follow Jesus. Today, what I want to do is I want to focus on Mark chapter 10, verse 45. And we're going to hear Jesus summarize his own role, his own ministry. Now, interestingly, that's not the main purpose of why he says these words. I've tried to hint during our prayers and during the reading of why he is saying these words. He's calling his disciples to a life that looks very similar to his own life. A life of service and a life of suffering. But that doesn't mean the words he says about his own role aren't true. It is helpful to understand what Jesus did come to do. And so by considering these words in chapter 10 verse 45, I want to show you who Jesus is. I want to try and convince you that he is not just an unpleasant necessity, but that he, following him, is an undeserved village. And I want to talk to you about the fact that when we talk about God loving us, I don't just mean that God is friendly enough to tolerate us. I want to show you that you are his desire. He wants to know you, and he wants you to know him. That's my aim this morning. And I'm going to start on that topic of power and authority. What did we mean when we were teaching the children that Jesus has all power and all authority? Well, 
we start at one of the one of the most fundamental truths about who God is. Scripture teaches us that God is just. It's one of the most basic things you can say about what God is like or who he is. God is just. He is a God of justice. Now, to be just, if you if you looked up in your dictionary, you'd find that the word justice basically means to be fair. And often when people think about justice or trying to find justice, you think of a courtroom. And you think of the judge weighing up the crime that has been committed and handing out a punishment that matches that crime. This is a fair punishment for that crime that's been committed. And that's a, that's a reasonable explanation of what justice is. But it's not all of what justice is. Justice doesn't have to include the issue of punishment. And so you would recognize, for example, it's an issue of justice that you get paid a fair wage for the work that you do in your workplace, for example. There's no punishment going on there, it's just fairness in, in, in what's going on. And so the Cambridge Dictionary, for example, also says justice, yes, is fairness, but it's also to be just is to be morally correct. To be morally correct. And it's interesting that the dictionary aligns morality with justice, because that's exactly what the Bible does. In the New Testament, the word for righteousness or moral rightness is the exact same word as the word for justice. They're not different words, it's the same word. And depending on context, it's meaning uh, the different nuances of those two things. Morality is closely connected to the issue of justice. And so when we talk about God saying God is just, we're meaning God is morally correct in some ways. It's what we mean when we say God is good. God is good. We're not, we're not saying that God is a nice guy. God is often kind to us. God is always ready to listen to you. Yes, he is those things. But when we say God is good, we mean something far more fundamental. We mean, if you want to know what goodness is, look at God. God is the definer of goodness. He is the standard of what is morally right and wrong. God is good. He is what is good. And therefore, Christians persuade others that the burning sense of absolute morality that is seared into every single one of our consciences, that knowledge that we have that certain actions are right and certain actions are wrong, and that is true for you and me and people across the globe and across history, certain things are right and wrong. We say that's put there by the one who is absolute truth, absolute moral correctness. It's put there by God. Your recognition of morality is evidence that God exists, we say. God is good. He is just. But he doesn't just keep his justice to himself. He is a God of justice. And he's concerned to preserve justice on earth. Now, you know already that this is good news. It would be terrible news if it wasn't true. I'm sure most of you have felt some sense of injustice at some point in your life. Maybe you've been on the receiving end of scandalous rumour. Maybe you have been the victim of uh, a scammer. Maybe you have received hurtful words from people that you thought you trusted or loved. Maybe you've been a victim of violence or theft. Whatever else it might be, we all come across injustice in our own lives uh, reasonably regularly. But probably you recognise that the injustice that you have suffered are not really different in magnitude to the vast majority of other people. And so, yes, you recognize the injustice, but it's not a, it's not a burning issue in your life. It's not the, the content of your hope that this justice would one day be resolved. 
And it's pushed perhaps to uh, maybe not the forefront, but a little bit further back in your priorities. But you recognize that for so many, injustice is a far greater issue in their lives. All you have to do is open a newspaper and read the stories of modern slavery, of sexual exploitation, of the mindless violence, people murdered because of a case of mistaken identity. You, you read of the stories of oppression against minorities, of racism that continues to persist, even in developed societies. You read of the horrors of war. You, re, you read of uh, political rulers abusing their power, corruption. And the whole world, it seems, at every corner screams out for justice. Where is the justice? Who is going to put these things right? Why is it that for all the years of human advancement, we cannot, we cannot get this basic issue correct? Why can't we bring justice to the world? The first real strong sense I had of this need of justice was when I was a, a teenager, really just growing up and growing into the world, as you might say, realizing that there's more to life than my own little bubble of influence and experience. And I remember watching a film called Cry Freedom. It's about the apartheid in South Africa. Really powerful film. I'd recommend you watch it if you get a chance. And it's about Steve Biko, who is a, a black um, activist, uh, opposing the apartheid system of white minority rule. And the film depicts how Steve Biko is really building up some, um, some support, not only from the black community in South Africa, but f- uh, amongst white liberals as well. Uh, He's put in court to to defend his views, and he argues eloquently and reasonably. And he seems to get a good hearing, not from from the newspapers and in the media. And then the next few scenes show how the police turn up and arrest him on his way to a rally. They beat him up without without trial, without question, without accusation of, of anything that he's done wrong. They beat him up so severely that he gets brain damage. The police doctor comes and visits him, and even the, the, the white police doctor says, you've gone a bit far here, he needs to get specialist treatment urgently. But rather than taking him to the nearest hospital, they throw him in the back of a police van and drive him along a bumpy track for 700 miles to get to another hospital where he can be treated. And of course, on the way, he's not in an ambulance, he's just in the back of a police van, bumping along this track. It makes his brain damage worse and he dies. And all of, his, all of his activism, all the progress that he seems to have been making towards justice, racial justice in South Africa, seems to be cut off. And the police stand up and speak to the rally and say, he killed himself. He was on hunger strike and he would not eat no matter how much we offered him. It was a total lie. And all the work that he'd done, it, when I saw it depicted in the film, the sense of injustice burned within me. And, and that moment, probably for the first time in my life, I was glad that there is a God of justice. That these men who seem to have gotten away with murder would not get away with murder. That they would be held accountable for the injustice that they brought. It's just one story, and, and, and I'm sure you can reel off many other similar stories. At times, we just, we just sense this burning need for justice. Where is God? And why doesn't he act? And many present that question today as a, as a question that, that seems in their mind to refute Christianity. God cannot be here because of injustice. And it sounds like a, a really witty and, and powerful argument against God. But it's not a modern question. It's not a modern idea. People have been asking that question since the dawn of time. Where is God? Why doesn't he act? 
The scriptures tell us he will act. He is a God of justice. And one day he will bring every action, every thought, every deed, every word to account. The Old Testament calls it the day of the Lord. It's a day of vengeance, a day of retribution, a day when God himself will come and put to right every wrong. It won't happen today. It won't happen tomorrow. But it will happen in the future. And the reason it's not happening now is not because God is slow to act, as some consider slowness. He's patient, not letting anyone perish because of their foolish actions, but willing to give opportunity for people to respond. The day of the Lord will come, a day when every nation will stand before the judge to have their actions weighed. And the judge will come with all power and with all authority. He's a judge, the scriptures say, who will be one like the Son of Man. God himself will come, one like the Son of Man. Not a sociological principle. This isn't karma that's going to bring justice. Thank God. Because karma can be beaten, can't it? The idea that if you are nice to others, your life will go well. If you are bad to others, your life will go badly. You might see a general trend in that direction in some areas of life, but it doesn't stack up in every situation. Thank God that it is not an impersonal spirit or principle who's going to come and hold the world to account, who's going to bring justice. Because you know as well that issues of justice are often intensely nuanced. Is it right or wrong for a man to steal bread if he's starving? It it takes more than an impersonal force or rule or principle to bring justice in that situation. It needs a person who knows and sees the motives of the heart. And so God says, one like a son of man will come. In many ways, he's going to be like you and he's going to be like me. And then Jesus arrives on the scene. And Jesus' favorite name to call himself is the son of man. Twice he uses it in this passage that we've read in Mark's Gospel. And the Pharisees understand straight away. The religious leaders know that when Jesus takes this name, I am the Son of Man, what he's, what he's saying about himself. They know that Jesus is claiming to be that judge, the one with all power and all authority. And it frustrates them because it sounds like blasphemy. God is the one like the Son of Man who's going to come. And also, Jesus, you are so unlike the Son of Man. What would you expect the Son of Man, the one with all power and authority, what would you expect him to be like? Would you expect him to sit with the the filth and the dirt of society? The tax collectors, the sinners, the prostitutes, the thieves, the murderers. Would you expect him to eat with such people, the one who's bringing justice? No, you wouldn't expect that. Would you expect him, the one with all power and authority, to be from some poor family, a a backcountry man, unknown, You wouldn't expect that if you had all power and authority. Would you expect such a man to commend the paying of taxes to the Roman Empire? That empire that has oppressed and and, uh, hurt God's people, Israel? No, you wouldn't expect that. Would you expect the judge to be talking about forgiving sins? Wiping the slate clean? If he's the one who's come to judge and hold people to account? No, you wouldn't expect that. And if he's the one with all authority, would you expect, chapter 10, verse 45, for him to be a servant? 
No, you wouldn't expect that. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, says Jesus. He didn't come to be served. Why did he come then? Was it a PR stunt? After all, it was quite a long time since God had performed those wonderful miracles like he did at getting his people out of Egypt or through Elijah, his prophets and the like. Maybe it was an opportunity for God to just add a little bit of freshness to his public image. Here's a few more miracles. Here's a a new demonstration of my own goodness and my own power. Was Jesus just sent by God to win followers, to create a, a celebrity following, as it were? No. He didn't come to be served. He didn't come to gain a cult following. Was it then like an early warning system of judgment? Like a last chance? Look, like an air raid warning siren. If you don't act now, judgment is coming and you better get ready because there'll be no more chances after that. Do what God says. Book up your ideas. Remind people of the law. Remind people of the standard that we ought to be living to. Is that why Jesus came? No. He didn't come to be served. He didn't come to force you into obedience through fear. He didn't come to shackle you. He didn't come to shake you into obedience. And Jesus' words in this verse demolish that idea that says Christianity is a system of morality. There is morality in Christianity. There are ways that we ought to live. But if that's all it is... You've totally misunderstood Christianity. Jesus' words in chapter 10, verse 45, show that it cannot be what Christianity is. Christianity cannot be a set of rules to live by. Christianity cannot be a way of proving ourselves to God. Because Jesus didn't come to be served. He came to serve. He came to serve, he says, by giving his life. That is, being willing to die. He gave his life as a ransom. He doesn't seem like the one with all power and authority. He doesn't act as we expect. Let's think about that ransom he talks about. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, I expect most of you know what a ransom is. It's a, it's a, uh, a payment offered for the release of a captive or a prisoner. And you hear stories on the news about ransoms getting paid, often to terrorists who have captured a journalist or a businessman um, or uh, a soldier or such like. And the terrorist demands, if you pay us the money, we'll release your man to you. And that's the way we see ransoms used today. And so it begs the question, well, if Jesus is offering his life as a ransom, I wonder, who is he paying the ransom to? Who has these captives that Jesus has to pay? Who has this sway and influence over Jesus? That seems like quite a powerful position to be in, doesn't it? Is it, I wonder, is it Satan? Is it the devil? Who Jesus has to give up his life as a payment to the devil in order to release people, to win them back? I want to say an emphatic no to that point. The ransom, Jesus says, is paid as he gives his life. The ransom is paid at the cross, the moment he dies. But the cross is never, in the New Testament, depicted as a scene where Satan is receiving payment from Jesus. 
In fact, the cross is not even Satan's victory over Jesus. Colossians tells us the cross is the moment where all those pretended powers and authorities are made a public spectacle. The cross, the moment that Jesus dies, is the moment that he achieves victory over Satan. And interestingly, if you look throughout the Gospels, you'll find that often, although Satan influences Judas to betray Jesus, it is when Peter distracts Jesus from his task of going to the cross. That Jesus says, Peter, you're speaking to me the words of Satan. Get behind me, Satan. I think Satan's aim was not to get Jesus on the cross. I think Satan's aim was to keep Jesus from the cross. To stop him doing what he came to do. It'd be foolishness, I think, to think that Satan had thought he had won on that Friday as Jesus died, and then, oh, silly me, I did not realise. If only I'd have read the scriptures and realised that Jesus was going to rise again, now I've been beaten. Satan is not as foolish as that. He's not as blind as that. Jesus is not offering his life to Satan in this moment, and certainly Satan does not have the upper hand over Jesus at any point in his ministry even at his lowest point on the cross. The Bible will not have it. And so the ransom that Jesus is talking about is unlike the ransoms that we hear about today. Because it's not defined by the one who it is paid to. Instead, let's think about the ransom in terms of the prisoner that it sets free. We talked earlier about God, the judge. And how good it is that God will hold every deed, every word, every thought to account and bring justice. That his morality, that his rightness isn't just contained within himself, but spills out and influences the world and we will be held to account. But now imagine, how would you stand? How would you fare if you had to stand before the judge? On the whole, you might say, you're a, you're a fair person. You're morally good, especially if you compare yourself to the people around. Yes, you might accept I am not perfect. Don't we all have flaws? We all have regrets, mistakes we've made in life. But you hope that you've done enough good to outweigh the wrong that you've done. I want to challenge you on that point. How can future actions undo the hurt and damage that you've caused by your present day actions or the things in your past. Let's take an example which I expect will apply to many of us. When we are young, we say silly things. I'm sure you can think back at times where you've said hurtful words to others. You've been part of the group bullying another. You've spoken rashly uh, to someone who you confess a love for. You have spoken out of turn because you've not got the full set of details. You've been filled with emotion and passion and you've spoken before you've thought, or perhaps you've just been uh, stupid rather than emotionate and passionate, and you've regretted those things you've said and you've seen the damage it's done to another person. Can you remember an instance you've done that? And now ask yourself, what is it then that cancels that out? What is it that means that will not be held to account? What is it that means that That the God of all justice, who is morally correct in every way, will not hold you account for that wrong that you've done. Is it because you've been generous later on in life? Is it because on another occasion you held your tongue? 
Often we try and convince ourselves that that's the case. I'm not always speaking like that. Surely I'm generally a good person. But ask yourself, even on a human level, does that undo the harm that you've caused by those foolish words that you said earlier on? Have you even repaired the wrong that has been done? Have you even spoken to the person and and amended that relationship on a human level? And now on a divine level, in what sense is justice delivered and maintained if an entirely unrelated and separate action by you is deemed to cancel out that wrongdoing? And recognise as well that often it's not our good works that we're depending on, it's really just our lack of other bad works, of other wrongdoings. If God was to ignore that sin, where then would be that God of justice? Where would he be? Where would be the good news of the one who holds everything and everyone to account? And it's not just this one example that you could speak of in terms like that. Is your greed, for example, excusable because you're not greedy after things that are as big or as damaging as the people in the newspapers that you see when they exercise their greed? Are your lustful habits excusable because you're only one who benefits from exploitation rather than the one who is the first cause of sexual exploitation? Is the damage that has been caused by your gossip okay because first it was told to you by someone else and after you other people passed it on, you were only one link in the chain. You were never the beginning. The errors we see in the lives of other people are exactly the same errors that we see in our own lives, if we're honest. They're exactly the same errors that God, the judge, will see in our own lives. Perhaps not in magnitude, I grant you that, but certainly in motive. And the God of justice is to account. So if you were to stand before God, well, who could stand? We're trapped in that case. We're prisoners. We're trapped by our own wrongdoing. We're trapped because we find ourselves in a cycle. I know I have done things wrong, and I know yet there will be more to come. I'm trapped and stuck. I'm trapped because there's no way that my future actions can put right the things I've done wrong in the past. No amount of striving or obedience can change what has happened. And Jesus, the Son of Man, the one with all power and authority, he knows. His word reveals it to us. His word is is sharp. It pierces right to our very hearts, right to the marrow of our bones to show us this sin. And perhaps that's the way you're feeling convicted this morning, by his word showing you your own failings. Jesus, the Son of Man, sees humanity, a people who, has become, who he has become part of, and he sees them as only guilty. But, he says, he didn't come to be served, he came to serve. He came to serve guilty people. He came to serve the undeserving. And so, incredibly, amazingly, wonderfully, instead of condemning us, Instead of treating us as we deserve, he invites us. He says, be my follower. Follow me. Be my disciple. Be joined to me. Go where I go. Do what I do. Be joined with me. Become part of my family. Be united to me. 
in a real close unity. Not just having me as a mascot that you, that you speak to on a Sunday morning. Really base your life upon me. And walk in my footsteps. Go where I go. Be joined to me as though in marriage. As though you were able to say those words of the marriage vows. All that I have, I give to you. All that I am, I share with you. And he says the same in return. This is not said to all. It's to many that he gives his life as a ransom. It's to those who are willing to join themselves in this way to Christ through faith. Through baptism. Through becoming part of his church. Through believing in him. And trusting and following him day by day. And then once you've been joined to him, all of your guilt becomes his problem too. He's your representative. He's joined to you inseparably. Just like the debt of a wife is the debt of a husband too. So your guilt before God is the guilt that Christ owns for himself. The justice of God now can fall upon him, not upon you. And, and, and this is what he does when he offers his life as a ransom. He suffers the justice of God. It falls on him as, a, as the representative of his people so that his people can be free. And in this way, God remains just. He remains morally correct. There is no sense that the wrongs of the world are being forgotten or pushed aside or ignored. Justice is being done. Punishment is being delivered. Those who have been wronged can rejoice that God has not forgotten my plight, but has dealt with it as it deserves. God remains just. But while remaining just, he justifies the guilty. He makes us right. Not by teaching us, not by making us into better people. God's great plan was not education. He's not making us good enough so that our sins can be forgotten or ignored. No, our guilt is being dealt with fully. Our account is being wiped clean. And so the Christian has an answer to that guilty conscience that so often condemns. In this way, God is truly able to forgive. What is forgiveness, after all, if the cost is not absorbed by the one who has been offended? To make someone pay you back is not forgiveness. The one who has been wronged has to absorb the cost if it's going to be real forgiveness. And so in this case, God, the one who has been wronged by our sin, the one who has been offended by our wrongdoing, absorbs the cost by sending his own son to suffer the justice that our wrongdoing deserves. And therefore, Christ shows us that God truly loves the world. God's highest aim is not his law being kept, or his name being honoured, God's highest desire is that you, broken, messy, undeserving people, would be able to enjoy the highest good. To enjoy the highest good without stain or blemish or distraction. That you would be able to enjoy peace without ignorance or laziness. That you would be able to enjoy joy without regret. That you would be able to have abundance without oppression. That you would be able to be satisfied without resorting to greed. That you would be able to have life 
that is untainted by death. This is the good thing that God, God offers. In some, it's himself. All that is morally good and all that is morally right. And he invites us to be part of it. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. How are we to respond? Simply, would you submit? Would you submit to him? Not like a slave submits to their master. A slave submits to their master in the hopes that if I do the right thing for my master, he will treat me fairly and kindly. If I do the right thing for my master, the punishments will stop coming. That's how a slave submits. Don't submit like that. Submit rather like a, like a drowning man submits to his rescuer. He stops struggling. He stops trying to prove himself. He stops trying to kick himself up to the, uh, to the surface. And instead he allows his rescuer to do all the work. Save me. Rescue me. Take on my weakness. Be my saviour. Would you submit to Christ, the one who gave his life as a ransom for you?